Exodus chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 1 through 28. And if you're using a copy of um, Scripture, I know you're going to find it helpful to be looking there with me as we look at Exodus 12, 1 through 28. This is our third lesson in a short series on the sacraments, and we're going to look this morning at the Passover, which was one of two sacraments in Old Covenant Israel's history. And we're going to consider the significance of the Passover. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at this together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who has spoken, and that you have spoken clearly in your word. We thank you that you have breathed out every word in scripture by your spirit, that you have inspired it, that it is the perfect rule for life and godliness. We thank you that you have given us everything that you want us to have and that we need to have in Scripture, and yet we also thank you that you have given us uh, tangible and sensible signs and seals of your covenant of grace, that you have made known Christ and all of the full benefits of redemption that we have in him through those sacraments that you have given your church. We pray, our God, that you would help us to understand the significance of them and to appreciate them more and to Um, come to them more knowledgeably and with a desire to grow and to feed on Christ and to um, grow in deeper communion with the Lord Jesus. And so we pray that you would help us this morning as we look at your word, that you would teach us and instruct us and build us up. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 12, beginning in verse 1. Remember, this is uh, being given in the context of the plagues that God sent on Egypt. And Exodus 12, in this section in particular, is uh, occurring right in between the declaration about the 10th plague and the execution of the 10th plague. So it's a bit of a hiatus, as it were, between that last plague dividing the pronouncement of the plague and the execution of it. And Moses now records these words. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And this day shall be for you a memorial day. 
You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done in those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. He shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. On the first day, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leaven, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leaven. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go to the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, And on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. As I noted already, this comes right in between the pronouncement or the threatening of the final plague that God is sending on Egypt and the execution of that plague that happens immediately after this. And it is strategically located because this plague is different than all the other plagues. Now, um, in one sense, all the plagues are the same. They are executions of God's judgment against um, a wicked people. They are perhaps also executions against the specific gods of Israel. There's a lot that's been done there. I think there's probably validity to that, that God is dealing strategically with the Egyptians because Pharaoh has hardened his heart and against their gods in particular, hitting them where it hurts, as it were. Um, In this last plague, God is promising to do uh, the worst of the judgments by taking away the firstborn son. In the ancient Near East, the firstborn, as you know, was... Um, the highest of the prized of the peoples. There was um, nothing greater than the firstborn son. He was the heir. He was the next in line for the king. He was the one who would inherit all things and would carry on the namesake in the house. And here the Lord is promising that judgment. What makes this plague different than the others is that God distinguished between Egypt and Israel in the other plagues. And he doesn't distinguish between Egypt and Israel in this plague. Um, It's very interesting by way of entry into this that if you if you were an Israelite 
and you had been in the land of Egypt, you had been oppressed, you had been under the affliction and the burdens of uh, the Egyptians, and the Lord now comes to deliver you, and he is um, striking your enemies in that place where it hurts them the most, you might come to a place where you think you're better than the Egyptians, that you deserve something. And in this last play, God is saying what Israel deserves is the same thing that Egypt deserves. If Israel doesn't have the blood of the Passover lamb, if there isn't a substitutionary provision, there is judgment that's going to befall Israel, just like it befell Egypt. Um, So before we talk about anything about the Passover lamb being a sacrament that the Lord gives Old Covenant Israel, we have to understand that this is teaching us about the wages of sin. Uh, It's saying there's none righteous, no, not one doesn't matter if you've grown up in the church. It doesn't matter what privileges you've had. You deserve the judgment of God, just like the most wicked people on the face of the earth. Um, That is the principle that underlies the Passover, judgment for everyone. Um, Gerhardus Voss, uh, the Princeton theologian, made the point that um, God's grace uh, cannot, he says, Uh, despite its sovereignty, work apart from a substitutionary sacrifice. So God cannot be gracious to you apart from a substitutionary sacrifice that takes the wrath you deserve and I deserve. He cannot be gracious to you. It doesn't matter how sovereign and free he is. His grace does not function apart from someone taking the judgment we deserve. That's the principle behind the Passover. Why does God give this to Israel and not to Egypt? Because he's gracious. What happens if Israel doesn't believe and act in accord with that? They're going to be subject to the same judgment that Egypt's subject to. Now, where in the text do we see that Israel deserves that judgment? Well, we see it in them rejecting the word of God initially at the beginning of the book of Exodus, when the Lord sends them Moses and they say, who are you? And Moses comes with God's word and they reject God's word. So before Pharaoh rejects God's word, Israel has rejected God's word. We also see it everywhere in the scriptures. It reminds us that Israel was practicing idolatry in Egypt. They had learned the idolatrous ways of the Egyptians. They were worshiping those gods in Egypt. We see that when they come to the foot of Sinai and they make for themselves the golden calf. Where did they learn about the golden calf? They learned it by worshiping idols in Egypt. When God delivers Israel, it's not just a physical deliverance. He is spiritually redeeming them from idolatry. And so Israel deserves the same thing the Egyptians deserve because Israel has done the same thing the Egyptians have done. And so when the Lord comes, we see this glorious provision of grace and redemption. And it becomes that for Israel throughout the entirety of the Old Covenant until the coming of Christ. And remember, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Uh, a few years ago, Christianity Today ran an article by a somewhat respected theologian, and his argument in that article was that Christians should be keeping the Passover to better understand our Jewish heritage. And what was noticeably absent in that article was any reference to Jesus fulfilling the Passover. Um, that's the whole point of the New Testament. 
Um, this, interestingly, is a New Testament scholar writing this article. I thought, huh, <laughs> clearly he has not read the New Testament very carefully. There is no requirement for us to keep the Passover in the way Israel kept it. There is a requirement for us to keep the Passover by abiding in Christ and uh, remaining in the truth about Jesus and feeding on Jesus. In fact, I would argue that the Passover under undergirds so much of what Jesus teaches in the New Testament, and especially in John chapter 6, when Jesus speaks about uh, feeding on him and being the bread that came down from heaven, clearly the Exodus motif of Israel in the wilderness. But when Jesus speaks of feeding on him, he is alluding to the command of Israel to eat the Passover lamb. Now, before we jump to New Testament fulfillments and all of that, I want us to consider uh, the nature of the sacrament. What what about this as a sacrament? Well, notice in verse 14, the Lord says, This day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Now, Notice back in verse 13, um, just before telling Israel this would be a memorial to them, he says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Um, We've spoken already about sacraments being signs and seals of God's grace and mercy in Christ. They, They signify and then they seal the promises and, and we have not yet talked about there being a memorial aspect. There is a memorial aspect to sacraments. Sometimes the reform go the other way because um, broad evangelicalism says sacraments are just memorials. We're just doing this in remembrance. And, and that's not fully accurate. They are more than that, but they are not less than that. In verse 14, he says that, that God is giving Israel this to be a memorial. It's to remind them of what he's doing here and and throughout their generations what he's done, and it's pointing forward. It's pointing backwards, and it's pointing forwards. It's a memorial. It's saying, remember what I did in delivering you and redeeming you. Remember what I will do in the full redemption, and it's a sign. It's pointing not just back. It's, it's again, pointing forward. It's signifying what he's going to do, and notice this in verse 13. It's a sign both for Israel And for the Lord, there's a two-sided component to this, just like with the rainbow. Remember, God puts the rainbow in the sky as a sign of his promise never again to destroy the world. He's going to bring a redeemer. He's going to redeem a people out of every tongue, tribe, nation, and language, right? That's why he preserves all of creation, so he can redeem a people from the nations. And he puts that sign, and God says, when I see, when I see the sign, You would think he said, when you see it, you remember. He said, when I see it, I will remember my covenant. Now, God isn't forgetful. He doesn't need it. It's showing us that seal nature of the sacrament, right? The seal. God is saying, my promise is sure. When you see it, I'm seeing it. My seeing it means that it's certain I'm going to do it. And notice the Lord here at the Passover says um, in verse 13, The blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over. Now, um, 
There is debate in church history as to whether or not the Passover was a sacrifice. Most of the reformers are going to reject that the Passover was a sacrifice. Why? Because the Roman Catholic Church took the Passover and said the Lord's Supper, which they call the Mass, has replaced the Passover, which we are going to agree with. That's true. It's not a Mass. It's not a sacrifice. But they're going to say, just as the Passover was a sacrifice, so the Supper is a, is a sacrifice, and therefore the priest is continually sacrificing. Most of the reformers are going to overreact to Rome and say this wasn't a sacrifice. This is clearly a sacrifice. This is clearly a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of God's people. Um, there are things that are unique about it that we don't find um, fully in the sacrificial system in Israel. The blood on the doorpost is unique. Um, there are features about it, the directions given about how Israel is to partake of it are unique. Um, in fact, uh, some have argued that it's not a sacrifice on the basis that Israel eats the lamb. And in the sacrificial system, only the priests could eat the sacrifice. I actually think it's a foreshadowing of what God says to Israel, that you're going to be a kingdom of priests to me. So before he sets up the priesthood and, and gives the priests the right to sacrifice for the people and eat the lamb, here the families are all representative of the priesthood of believers, all together partaking of the sacrifice, offering it on behalf of their people. Now, there is a progression in the Old Testament, this really beautiful picture. Phil Riken says this. He says, there's an obvious progression here, the lamb serving as a representative for larger and larger groups of people. At first, God provided one lamb for one person. I want you to think about this. Remember, Abel sacrifices the lamb for himself. Riken says, Abraham offered a ram in the place of his son Isaac. Next, God provided one lamb for one household. This happened at the first Passover when every family in the covenant community offered its own lamb to God. Then God provided one sacrifice for the whole nation. On the Day of Atonement, a single animal atoned for the sins of all Israel. Finally, the day came when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a pretty awesome thought. The individual, the families, the nation, the world. God was planning this all along, Riken says, one lamb to die for the world. By his grace, he has provided a lamb, the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. And so there is something unique about the institution of the Passover in redemptive history, and yet it is part of that bigger picture of God's provision of an atoning sacrificial lamb for the sins of his people. Now, when we go into the details about the Passover, we want to first consider um, the word Passover. It comes from a Hebrew word that carries the idea of leaping over. Um, obviously, we're, we are going to understand that in terms of God uh, passing by in judgment, right? He is that paschal, the word paschal carries the idea of leaping over. God is going to leap over the judgment of his people when he sees the blood on their doorpost. 
Um, why, why the doorpost of the house? Anybody? It's a testament to the community. The, of the family itself, right? The family is within and the family is safe. It's the entry place into the home. The home is covered by the blood. The whole of the house is sanctified in that sense. Um, God is showing that he cares about the redemption of the family already at the Passover, just like he did with Noah and his sons. Though not all were redeemed, God dealt with the family, with Noah and his offspring. God's dealing with the family and the home, and and the home is to be a place in which the blood of, of Christ is on the people. It's to be set apart and sanctified to God. It's to be a place of worship, a place where the gospel is central, a place where uh, the people are, of God are set apart together to worship God in their homes. Uh, just an interesting aside, Charles Spurgeon, who has often been criticized for going too far with typological um, ideas and thoughts, although I think we have a, a great deal to learn from him. And I've often said, when you can preach like Spurgeon, you can criticize Spurgeon. <laughs> but um, it's easy to sit back and criticize Spurgeon, but you're no Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> and I'm no Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon said, why, why was there no blood to go on the floor? Well, that would indicate that we are trampling the blood of Jesus underfoot, picking up on that imagery out of Hebrews. But on the sides of the door, on the top of the door, in the place where the people entered and went, the blood of Jesus was covering and protecting. God would see that blood that the destroying angel would pass over and would spare the firstborn in the home. Now, notice that there are very distinct typological details about this Passover lamb. Um, the first is in verse eight, they shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Now, this is to be a, a roasted sacrifice. That's a picture of the sacrifice being consumed in the wrath of God. That's the picture of the Old Testament. Every time the sacrifice is consumed in the fire, the picture is that God's wrath is consuming the substitute. Um, one of the denominations in America, I think it's the Methodist Church, perhaps, has the fire going around the cross. It's a shame they don't have that in their preaching often. But um, but the picture is that the fire is consuming the sacrifice. Remember with Samson. Remember Samson's uh, parents meet the angel of the Lord. And uh, Manoah runs out and says to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? And the angel says, and I think it's Christ, obviously. Why do you ask my name? Seeing that I am wonderful. And remember, the child's name is wonderful in Isaiah 9, 6. Clearly, this is a theophany. It's the messenger of the Lord, the Melech Yahweh. And, and Manoah bows down to worship. Another, I think, proof that it's a theophany. And the Lord says to Manoah, here's what I want you to do. Offer a sacrifice. And as the fire comes down on the sacrifice, what happens? The Melech Yahweh, the, the messenger whose name is Wonderful, goes up into the flames. It's a picture of the cross. He's going up in the flames, just like the rock in the wilderness, right? 
Paul says that rock is Christ in 1 Corinthians 10, 1. All our fathers drank from the rock. That rock was Christ. Remember what happened. The Melech Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, came and stood. The Lord stood on the rock. And Moses struck the rock with the rod of justice. Right? The same rod that was used on the Egyptians. Symbolically is striking the Lord. And so these pictures of judgment and wrath on a substitute are painted everywhere in scripture here the the lamb is to be roasted in the fire with unleavened bread we'll talk about that in a minute bitter herbs why bitter herbs god wants them to remember the bitterness of the affliction they endured in egypt and the bitterness of their own sin the sacrifice was necessary because of the bitterness of their sin all these things are um symbolic they're types of spiritual truths god's giving his people um notice none of it's to remain until the morning anything of it that remains until the morning you shall burn um it's to be eaten fully quickly um they are not to waste any time in appropriate appropriating to themselves the gospel you're not to delay in feeding on christ that's the point of that Um, The sacrifice happens quickly, and the people are to eat it. Notice verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet. This is the opposite of Cracker Barrel, where they say, loosen your belt. (laughs) Country boy breakfast. (laughs) Sorry for that trite. (laughs) Contrast. Um, Here, he says, you're to eat it with your belt fastened. Why? Is it because it's not going to be filling? No. Why is their belt to be fastened? Why are their sandals to be on their feet? Why should their staff be in their hand? Why? They're, They're going. God is redeeming them. This is the, this is the, in one sense, terminus of their redemption. This is everything. This is how they're getting redeemed. They should be ready to go because this is it. It's not because God's going to strike the firstborn. It's because God's given them the sacrificial lamb that they're going to be set free and they're going to go out. You shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. There is one more really beautiful point in here. Notice back earlier at the beginning of the section, notice verse three, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, He and his nearest neighbor shall take enough according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish a male the first year. And notice he doesn't say if there's not enough lamb for the household. It should strike you as strange that it says if there's too much, get your neighbor. There's plenty of Christ of his own fullness. We have all received grace upon grace. There's no lack. That's the point. Um, There's almost too much in Jesus. Um, I think that's a really awesome typological idea there. If the lamb is too big, too much, the lamb should be without blemish, right? Not one spot, not one skin disease, nothing, right? Sinless lamb of God, perfect, morally pure is who Jesus is. 
Now, how do we know other than 1 Corinthians 5 that this is pointing forward to Jesus and everything about him in the greater Exodus? How do we know that? Where else in the New Testament do we read? Um, where else in the New Testament do we read about the fulfillment of the Passover in Christ? There's there's several places. Well, one is in John, I believe chapter 19, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and the soldiers come by to break the legs of those who had been crucified to put them out of their pain, as it were, to bring them to a quicker death, to get them off the cross. And they come to Jesus and he's already died. And so they don't break his legs. And John says, so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken, not one of its bones should be broken. And he lifts that straight out of Exodus 12. And John is saying, here is the Passover lamb. Here is the one that takes the judgment in the place of his people so that God passes by in judgment. Here is the one we're to feed on in haste. Here is the one who is roasted under the fire of God's wrath for his people. Here's the one whose blood God must see not on the doorpost of our houses, but on our hearts, on our consciences. So John, the apostle John tells us, Jesus is the Passover lamb, not just through John the Baptist saying, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but through the very details, not one of his bones should be broken. Uh, Jesus himself alludes to being the greater Moses and to bringing his people out through the greater Exodus in the transfiguration. Remember when he takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain and Moses and Elijah appear and in uh, Luke 9, as well as in Matthew and Mark, it says that Moses and Elijah appeared with him in glory and they spoke with him. And Luke is the only one that tells us what they talked about. That seems like a pretty important thing. Moses and Elijah come back from glory thousands of years after they've been in glory to be with Jesus on the mountain. What would they talk about? And Luke in Luke 9.31 says they spoke of his literally exodus, his exodon in Greek, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Our English translations say departure, um, but a better translation is his exodus that he was about to accomplish. You don't accomplish death. You accomplish an exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So he is the one who delivers his people both as the Passover lamb and as the greater Moses, leading his people out of bondage to Satan, sin, and death. So that when we're redeemed, we have experienced an exodus through the Passover lamb, Jesus. And then finally, the Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians 5 in a very unusual context, actually. And if you want to turn there, go ahead. We'll look at that briefly. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, I believe. I sure hope I'm right. If not, we'll have to figure it out. Amen. I am. (laughs) Let it be. All right. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, what is the context? The context is we have a disciplinary problem in the church. We have a man who is having an adulterous relationship with his stepmother. The church is boasting about it. He is not repentant. 
The Apostle Paul is called in to deal with this situation. He deals with it very swiftly, ultimately telling them to excommunicate this man. And in the middle of that section, that treatment, which seems like an odd place for this, notice what he says, verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's already picking up on the Passover details, right? They should eat unleavened bread. What does that signify? Well, Paul is going to tell us here in this chapter what it signifies. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and even evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What was the point of the unleavened bread with the Passover lamb? It was to show that the people were to be separate. It was, it was a picture of holiness because leaven uh, infiltrates and spreads. It's often used by Jesus and the apostles to talk about the influence of sin And here in the congregation, the congregation is to be unleavened, not to tolerate impurity and uncleanness, not to not to have a hint of it among them. And here uh, the Apostle Paul reminds them that the reason we are unleavened is because Christ is our Passover lamb and he's been sacrificed for us. And so we keep the feast not by observing Passover literally and and physically and materially, we keep it by walking in sincerity and truth in the church, feeding on Christ. Now, um, there's so much more we could say. One thing I will point out is that Jesus partook of the Passover on the night he was betrayed. That's going to be the link between Passover and the Lord's Supper, and we'll talk about that when we come to the Lord's Supper. But it's fascinating, just like he took circumcision to himself, the sign, representatively had to take a sign that said, I need my sinful heart cleansed by a bloody judgment. So he partook of the other sign that said, we need to be redeemed by a substitutionary sacrificial lamb. I think Jesus ate the Passover. By the way, it was impossible for you to be a vegetarian in the Old Testament. I'll just throw that out there. (laughs) I know it's like trendy and hip and cool now. You would go to hell if you were a vegetarian in the Old Testament. You had to eat the lamb. Jesus and his disciples observed the Passover. They sang the Hallel, Psalm 113 to 118, as they came together. And and there's this beautiful picture, and I'll leave you with this thought this morning. Um, In between that supper, Jesus lays aside the Passover and institutes the supper. And one old writer, R.A. Finlayson, says it's as if he pushes aside the old covenant ordinance and he puts himself on the table really beautiful picture. He pushes aside the Passover lamb and he puts himself on the table to show that he's the one come to fulfill what this sign and seal were pointing to. It's a memorial pointing back to what God did in delivering from Egypt. 
It's pointing forward to what's to come. And here's, here's how it works, finally. What happens if you don't have the blood of the Passover lamb in Israel, in Exodus? What happens to you the next day? You lose your firstborn. That, yeah, that night. Firstborn dies. And the way this works is that God passes over us because he didn't pass over Jesus on the cross. What was the plague right before this? Darkness. Thick darkness. What happens when Jesus is crucified? The sun is darkened. You see, God is pouring out the plagues on his son. He doesn't spare his son. He gives up his firstborn, his eternally begotten, so that he can pass over us in judgment. That's how all that works together as he lays down his life as the sinless Passover lamb without blemish because you deserve judgment and I deserve judgment. You know, with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, he was saying, we're done. And there's never been a sacrificial system instituted again, which is one of the interesting, glaring deficiencies of supposed Orthodox Judaism, is that they don't do the very thing that they needed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. But I think the reason is God, God was done. You know, Daniel said in one day he would put an end to sacrifice. That was the day of atonement when Jesus died. That was it. And the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 and Jerusalem was God saying, we're done. I'm not going to tolerate any more of that. 